Are you ready for some high adventure? Coming up next on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio presents Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and dramatized from stories by Dashiell Hammett. This time, a print shop owner is killed, run down by a car, and some foreign money is found in his hand. My client sends me out to solve the case, but how much can I find out in sixty minutes? Tonight's story: One Hour, adapted for audio by Pete Lutz. Hi, Mr. Richmond. I was told you wanted to see me. Yes, hello. Glad you could come over so quickly. Sit down. I want you to meet somebody. All right. This is Mr. Crosswaite. Mm-hmm. He was a big balloon of a man, this Crosswaite, in a green plaid suit that didn't make him look any smaller than he was. His tie was a gaudy thing, mostly of yellow, with a big diamond set in the center of it. And there were more stones on his spongy hands. His face was round and purple, and he reeked of gin. I met his grunt of greeting with a matching grunt, then looked to Richmond. Mister Crosswaite is the Pacific Coast agent for the Mutual Fire Extinguisher Manufacturing Company. His office is on Kearney Street near California. Yesterday at about two forty-five in the afternoon, he went to his office, leaving his machine, a Hudson touring car, standing in front with the engine running. When he came out ten minutes later, the car was gone. I looked at Crosswaite. He was looking at his fat knees, showing not the least interest in what his attorney was saying. I turned my attention back to Richmond. Five minutes after Mr. Crosswaite left his car to go into his office, a man named Newhouse was run down and killed by Mr. Crosswaite's car. At the corner of Clay and Kearney Streets, Mr. Newhouse was the proprietor of a printing establishment on California Street, just around the corner from Mr. Crosswaite's office. The police found the car shortly afterward, abandoned on Montgomery and Clay, a block away from the scene of the accident. So let me guess: someone stole the car immediately after the gentleman here left it, and in their haste ran down Mr. Newhouse. Then, in their fright, abandoned the car. This is how we assume it happened, but here's Mr. Crosswaite's position: three nights ago, while driving, perhaps a little recklessly, out drunk, while driving, perhaps a little recklessly, out Van Ness Avenue, Mr. Crosswaite knocked a pedestrian down. The man wasn't badly hurt, and he is being compensated generously for his injuries. But we are to appear in court next Monday to face a charge of reckless driving. And I'm afraid that this accident of yesterday, in which the printer was killed, may hurt us. 
Does anyone think that Mr. Crosswaite was in his car when it killed the printer? No. We have a world of evidence that he wasn't. But I'm afraid that the printer's death may be made a weapon against us when we appear on the Van Ness Avenue charge. The worst that can happen, of course, is that instead of the usual fine, Mr. Crosswaite will be sent to the city jail for 30 or 60 days. That is bad enough, however, and that is what we wish to... Damn nuisance. That is what we wish to avoid. We're willing to pay a stiff fine. And expect to, for the accident on Van Ness was clearly Mr. Crosswaite's fault. But we... (laughs) Drunk as a lord. But we don't want to have this other accident, with which he had nothing to do, given a false weight in connection with the slighter accident. What we want, then, is to find the man or men who stole the car and ran down John Newhouse. If they are apprehended before we go to court, we won't be in danger of suffering for their act. Think you can find them before Monday? I'll try. Though it isn't really... (laughs) Three o'clock. Got a game of golf for 3.30. (laughs) Find him, will ya? Damn nuisance going to jail. And with that, he waddled out. From the attorney's office, I went down to the Hall of Justice and, after hunting around a few minutes, found the patrolman who'd arrived at the corner of Clay and Kearney Streets a few seconds after Newhouse had been knocked down. He was a big, sandy-haired Irishman named Coffee. I was just leaving the hall when I seen a bus scoot around the corner at Clay. Then I seen people gathering round, so I went up there and I found this Newhouse feller stretched out. He was already dead. How many people saw him get hit? Oh, half a dozen easy. One of them got the license number of the car that done it. The witnesses say there was two fellers in the car when it hit Newhouse, but nobody saw what they looked like. Nobody was in the car when we found it. In what direction was Newhouse walking? North, along Kearney. And he was about three quarters across Clay when he was knocked. The car was coming north on Kearney, too, and turned east on Clay. Now, mind you... What? Mind you... It mightn't have been the fault of the fellers in the car. That's what I gather from them what seen the accident. What makes you think so? Newhouse, he was walking across the street looking at a piece of paper. I found a piece of foreign money, paper money, in his hand. And I guess that's what he was looking at. The lieutenant tells me it was Dutch money. A hundred florin note, he says. Have you found out anything about the men in the car? Not a thing. We lined up everybody we could find in the neighborhood of California Street in Kearney, where the car was stolen from, and around Clay and Montgomery, where it was left at. But nobody remembered seeing the fellers getting in it, nor getting out of it. The owner of the car didn't do it. Right, right. It was stolen, for sure. At first, I thought maybe there was something shady about the accident. Shady? How so? Well, this here new house had himself a two- or three-day-old black eye on him. Oh. Yeah, but we run that out and found that he'd had an attack of heart trouble or something a few days ago and fell, fetching his eye up against a chair. He'd been home sick for three days, just left his house half an hour or so before the accident. Where'd he live? 
Way out Sacramento Street. I got his address here somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, here it is. I can give you the dead man's house number, plus the names and addresses of the witnesses I questioned. 99% of detective work is the patient collecting of details. And your details must be got as nearly firsthand as possible, regardless of who's worked the territory before you. As a result, even though the police had already fruitlessly gone over this ground, my next play was to canvas the vicinity of where the car had been stolen and where it had been deserted, and then interview the witnesses. It was unlikely that I'd get a better result than the cops, but I couldn't skip these things on that account. Before starting on this angle, however, I decided to run around to the dead man's printing establishment and see if any of his employees had heard anything that might help me. Newhouse's print shop occupied the ground floor of a small building on California Street between Kearney and Montgomery. A small office was partitioned off in front with a connecting doorway leading to the press room in the rear. When I came in from the street, the only occupant of this office was a short, stocky man with a worried look who was checking off figures in a ledger against others on a batch of papers before him. I'm from the Federated Detective Agency. I'm looking into your boss's death. Oh, my name's Souls. Ben. I'm, or I was, Mr. Newhouse's foreman. Have a seat. I need a break from this paperwork. Not my job, usually. <laughs> ah, this stuff is the worst. What with one thing and another, we're heels overhead with work, and I gotta fool around with these books that I don't know anything at all about. And, yes, this is Souls. We're working on them now. I'll give them to you by Monday noon at the latest. I know we promised them for yesterday, but... I know! But the boss's death set us back. Explain that to Mr. Crossthwaite. And, and I promise you that we'll give them to you Monday morning. Sure. Ah, the nerve of some people. You'd think that since it was his own car that killed the boss, he'd have the decency enough not to squawk over the delay. Crossthwaite? Yeah, that was one of his clerks. We're printing some leaflets for him. Promised to have them ready yesterday. But between the boss's death and having a couple of new hands to break in, we're behind with everything. I've been here eight years and this is the first time we ever fell down on an order. And every damn customer is yelling his head off. If we were like most printers, they'd be used to waiting. But we've been too good to them. This crossed weight, though. Crying out loud. Yeah, that's tough, fella. Here, have a smoke. Gee, thanks, mister. Hmm. Say, this is a quality stogie. <clears throat> you said something about having a couple new hands to break in. How come? Yeah, Mr. Newhouse uh, fired two of our printers last week. Dan Fisher and Ross Key. He found out they belonged to the industrial workers of the world. So he gave them their time. 
Any trouble with them or anything against them except that they were wobblies? No. They were pretty good workers. How about after Newhouse fired them? Eh, no real trouble. Though they were pretty hot. They made red speeches all over the place before they left. Remember what day that was? Uh, Wednesday of last week, I think. Yeah, Wednesday. Because I hired two new men on Thursday. How many men do you work? Three, besides myself. Was Newhouse sick very often? Not sick enough to stay away very often. Though every now and then his heart would go back on him and he'd have to stay in bed for a week or ten days. He wasn't what you'd call real well at any time. He never did anything but the office work. I run the shop. When was he taken sick this last time? Mrs. Newhouse called up Tuesday morning and said he'd had another spell and wouldn't be down for a few days. He came in yesterday, which was Thursday, eh, for about ten minutes in the afternoon and said he'd be back on the job this morning. He was killed just after he left. How'd he look? Very sick? He never looked well, of course, but he didn't look so bad. Anyway, I couldn't see much difference from usual yesterday. Usually, he was laid up for a week or more. So I reckon the spell hadn't been as bad as most. Did he say where he was going when he left? The reason I ask is that living out on Sacramento Street, he'd naturally take a streetcar at that street if he'd been going home, whereas he was run down on clay. He said he was going up to Portsmouth Park to sit in the sun for half an hour or so. He'd been cooped up for two or three days and said he wanted some sunshine before he went home. Know anything about a piece of foreign money he had in his hand when he got hit? Yeah, he got it here. A customer named Van Pelt, a Dutchman, came in to pay for some work yesterday while the boss was here. When Van Pelt pulled out his wallet to pay his bill, this piece of Holland money, yeah, I don't know what you call it, was in among the American dollars. A hundred florins. Yeah, that's it. Florins. Van Pelt said it was worth about eight bucks. Anyway, the boss took it and gave Van Pelt his change. Said he wanted to show this Holland money to his boys. And he could have it changed back into American money later. Who's this Van Pelt? A Dutchman, like I said. He's planning to open a tobacco importing business here in a month or two. I don't know much about him outside of that. Where's his home or office? His office is on Bush Street near Sansom. Did he know that Newhouse had been sick? I don't think so. The boss didn't look much different from usual. What's his full name? Hendrik Van Pelt. What does he look like? Before souls could answer, three evenly spaced buzzes sounded above the rattle and whirring of the presses in the back of the shop. I slid the muzzle of my gun. I'd been holding it in my lap for five minutes, far enough over the edge of the desk for Ben's souls to see it. Put both of your hands on top of the desk. Okay. Now we just have to wait for your pals that you signaled to come in from the press room. His body served to screen my gun from the view of whoever came through the door. I didn't have long to wait. Three men, black with ink, came through the door into the little office. <laughs> Stop right there. See this? I kicked my chair back and stood up. 
I didn't like my position at all. The office was entirely too small for me. This foursome was too close. I had a gun, but they likely had weapons of some kind themselves. Still, I wasn't going to back down. Put your hands up. Turn around. Now why would we want to do that, mister? <laughs> There's four of us and only one of you. You can't shoot all of us before we take you down. These four men were going to jump me. There was no doubt of that. All that was needed was a spark of any sort to explode them into action. They were standing stiff-legged and tense, waiting for some move on my part. If I took a step backward, the battle would be on. I grinned what was supposed to be a confident grin because I was up against it hard and reached for the telephone. Something funny, pal. Who are you going to call? Your priest? <laughs> <laughs> I cursed myself. All I'd done by reaching for the phone was change the signal for the onslaught. It would come now when I picked up the receiver. But I couldn't back down again. That, too, would be a signal. I had to go through with it. The perspiration trickled under my temples from under my hat as I drew the phone closer with my left hand. Oh, my hood! Whoever you are, quick! The phone! The police! With the arrival of this unknown person behind me, one of Newhouse's customers probably, I figured I had the edge again. Even if he took no active part beyond calling the police in, the enemy would have to split up to take care of him, and that would give me a chance to pot at least two of them before I was knocked over. Two out of four. Each of them had an even chance of being dropped, which is enough to give even a nervy man cause for thinking a bit before he jumps. Hurry, do something. Yeah, yeah. Keyed up as I was, I didn't need any more warning than that. I threw myself sidewise, a blind tumbling away from the spot where I stood, but I wasn't quite quick enough. <sighs> the blow that came from behind didn't hit me fairly, but I got enough of it to fold up my legs as if the knees were hinged with paper, and I slammed into a heap on the floor. Something dark crashed toward me. I caught it with both hands. It may have been a foot kicking at my face. I wrung it as a washerwoman wrings a towel. For the next few minutes, I was on the floor and on my feet again, more times than I can count. I took punches to every part of my frame and gave as good as I got to all five of them. I was fighting against unconsciousness constantly. Everything was nearly black. I'd lost my gun at some point in the melee, but it must have slid under the desk because nobody else picked it up. Ceaselessly, head and shoulders and elbows and fists and knees and feet, I struck at the shadows that were around me. My leg suddenly felt a burning sensation running down it, but it wasn't a burn, it was a knife. The sting of it brought consciousness back into me with a rush. My straining gaze rested on a brass cuspidor. I grabbed it and used it to club away to my feet, then to club a clear space in front of me. As the men hurled themselves upon me, I swung the cuspidor high and flung it over their heads through the frosted glass door into California Street. Then, we fought some more. But you can't throw a brass cuspidor through a glass door into California Street between Montgomery and Kearney without attracting attention. It's too near the heart of daytime San Francisco. So presently, when I was on the floor again with six or eight hundred pounds of flesh hammering my face into the boards, we were pulled apart and I was dug out of the bottom of the pile by a squad of policemen. 
big, sandy-haired coffee was one of them, but it took a lot of arguing to convince him that I was the Federated operative who talked to him a little while ago. Man, man, them lads, sure by God they worked you over. You got a face on you like a wet uranium. It's not funny. Oh, wait, I can only see out of one eye. Yep, there they are. You got all five of them, I see. True enough, man. Now, what's the answer? This is a crowd that ran down Newhouse, and it wasn't an accident. I wouldn't mind having a few more of the details myself, but I was jumped before I got all of my questions answered. Remember Newhouse had a hundred florin note in his hand when he was run down? Sure. I'm the one told you about it. Well, he was walking in the direction of police headquarters. This shop was only half a block away from the Hall of Justice. Remember that. All righty. Souls tells me that Newhouse said he was going up to Portsmouth Square to sit in the sun. But Souls didn't seem to know that Newhouse was wearing a black eye, the one you told me you'd investigated. If Souls didn't see the shiner, then it's a good bet that he didn't see Newhouse's face that day. His spells of heart trouble usually kept him away from work for a week to ten days at a time. This time, he was laid up for only two and a half days. When I came into the shop, Souls told me that the shop was three days behind with its orders and that it's the first time in eight years that they've ever been behind. He blames Newhouse's death, but that happened only yesterday. The man's illness hadn't delayed things before. Why should they this time? Two printers were fired last week, and two new ones were hired the next day. Pretty quick work. The car that ran down Newhouse was taken from just around the corner and was deserted within quick walking distance of the shop. I saw in your report that the car was left facing north. Well, that tells me the occupants went south after they got out. That's right, sir. Ordinary car thieves wouldn't have circled back in the direction from which they came. No. Tell me about this Dutchman, Van Pelt. While I'm lying on my back in bed recuperating from my injuries, Officer Coffey came to see me. He said, You'll never guess what we found in Van Pelt's office. A great bale of counterfeit hundred flora notes. Turns out this Dutchman has a reputation in Europe as a high-class counterfeiter. So Van Pelt had these plates for phony Dutch money, and he hunted around until he found a printer who'd go in with him. Souls was his man, and one of the printers in the shop was willing to go in with him. Maybe the other two turned the offer down, or maybe Souls didn't even ask them. Anyhow, they were discharged, and two friends of his took their places. So these men got everything ready, and they only had to wait until Mr. Newhouse became ill again. Yes, and it did Monday night. As soon as his wife called up next morning and said he was sick, these birds started running off their counterfeits. That's why they fell behind with their regular work. But Newhouse wasn't out for as long as he usually was, and likely walked in while the others were busy in some far corner. He must have spotted some of the phony money, sized up the situation right away, grabbed one of the bills to show the police, and started out for the hall, no doubt thinking he'd not been seen by his employees. It seems he made an error in assuming so. True enough. Two of them caught a glimpse and followed him out. They couldn't gun him down in broad daylight on a busy street within a block or so of the Hall of Justice. But as soon as they found Crosthwaite's car, their getaway problem was solved. They'd planned to shoot him as they passed, but when they saw Newhouse crossing the street with his eyes fastened on the money in his hand, 
They saw that as a golden chance. They piled the car into him. It was sure death, they knew. His bum ticker would finish him if the actual collision didn't. Then they deserted the car and went back to the shop. Which two did the deed? Coffee got that from one of the printers who came through. It was Van Pelt and Souls who followed Newhouse out and ran him down. It seems as if this officer Coffee is a credit to the uniform. I'll say he is. After he and his mates broke up the fight, he stuck with me until the ambulance came. I'd been talking my head off, telling him a lot of the same stuff I've just been telling you, even though my head was swimming and I was utterly exhausted. But he shut me up by putting a big hand across my mouth. Be quiet now. Let me get you stretched out on the desk here. I'll have an ambulance here in a second for you. The office was swirling around in front of my one open eye. The ceiling swung down toward me, rose again, disappeared, came back in odd shapes. I turned my head to one side to avoid it, and my glance rested upon the white dial of a spinning clock. Presently, the dial came to rest, and I read it. Four o'clock. I remembered that Crosswaite had broken up our conference in Vance Richmond's office at three, and I'd started to work. <laughs> what? What is it, man? <laughs> One full hour. One full hour. <laughs> been listening to One Hour, Episode 3 of Season 2 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the Tech, Noah Diamond as Richmond, Paul Arbisi as Crosthwaite, Jeff Moon as Coffee, Mark Kalita as Souls, and Joe Stofko as the Old Man, with additional voices by John Bell. The theme and some incidental music was composed and performed by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. One Hour was written by Dashiell Hammett and was published in the April 1st, 1924 issue of Black Mask Magazine. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonia Sound Design. This program was adapted by and produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Please join us next time when the Federated Tech says... Asking a simple question leads to three murders and very nearly my own, followed by a hanging. It's Cherche Lefemme in the truest and most deadly sense of the phrase. Be with us for our next episode, The House in Turk Street, coming soon from 63 Audio. Governments throughout the world have been working around the clock to get more information about just how this event that we call the incident actually occurred. We're all just trying to have a nice family. Whoa! Whoa!
What, what was that? We recently discovered evidence that all of this, the incident, the pulse, wordnesia, was from a shadowy group that calls itself Cypher. We must maintain our power at all costs! The crisis is real. There's only one demographic who've remained unaffected. Who? Kids. Season 1, available now.